and during the day in the following couple of days. The temperature now is 19 degrees and the humidity is at 76%. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about the protection of the SAR's wetlands. With construction in three new development areas of the Northern New Territories now underway. Members of the public have until January the 20th to share their comments on the government's plan to establish a system of wetland conservation parks in various locations under the Northern Metropolis Development Strategy. One major project that is causing some concern to environmentalists is the plan to establish the Santin Technopole, which will be 17 times the size of the Hong Kong Science Park, expected to cover 627 acres of land. The development is part of the city's drive to boost research and development capabilities. Are development and biodiversity at odds or can they coexist? After 9.45, we'll discuss uh, suggestions to uh, review Hong Kong's approach to tackling African swine fever and other biological threats. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or call us on 233 Joining us now in our Admiralty studio are Ian Brownlee, Managing Director of the Town Planning Consultancy Master Plan. Good morning to you. Good morning. And also uh, with us is Alan uh, Chiaradia, who's uh, Associate Professor and Deputy Head of the University of Hong Kong's Department of Urban Planning and Design. And that's in the Faculty of Architecture. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, um, Ian Brownlee, perhaps we can start with you. With just with that uh, general question, then um, development and biodiversity can they coexist? Um, they can, uh, but I think you have to look at the historical um, perspective for this site. Um, if we go back to the eighties, um, Shenzhen was fish ponds and um, and paddy fields, and uh, the whole of that area in Deep Bay and, and the Hong Kong uh, area along the coast of Deep Bay was basically wetland. And progressively we've seen that uh, being reduced very, very significantly. And Shenzhen has, has occupied such a large area with development that there's not a lot of wetland lit over there of any significance. Um, on our side, if we look at the 90s, um, Tinsoi Wai, the first stage of Tinsoi Wai was built with no consideration of ecology, and that was all wetland. And uh, the, the second part, they built the uh, Hong Kong Wetland Park as part of the compensation of it. But um, at the same time, all the way along the strip of wetland, it was a very easy place to dump uh, rubbish, dump fill, and a lot of the fish ponds were being filled up. And um, Maipo Nature Reserve, uh, when it was... Uh, gazetted in the, in the 19, uh, 1995 um, and the Ramsar site was determined, uh, that became the first serious um, consideration of what's, what's happening to the wetlands. And there was a study carried out by government in 97, uh, the fish pond study, and the argument was being developed that, sure, we've got, we've got the Maipo Nature Reserve, 
but what's the relationship to all the wetlands that, and the fish ponds predominantly that are located inside the development area, potential development area? And we're losing, uh, like, uh, we're losing very large parts of that to fill. And um, the conclusion of the study was that all of these wetlands are interrelated and that the um, the birds that are basically, if you could simplify it and just say they're based in, in Maipo, they actually feed in, uh, on other areas outside of Maipo. And, and wherever there's wetland, there's probably some relationship to the birds. And, and it was made a Ramsar site because it's such an important site in, in terms of migratory birds going from uh, Siberia down to Australia. And, and there are thousands of birds that are, are coming in every year. And, and at different stages, these were, were being um, decreasing in numbers. And the Bird Watching Society, uh, they have a lot of information regarding this. Mm. But, but the, the outcome is that what's left is very, very precious. And, and the government, through the town planning regime, uh, put an enforcement action which stopped the fill, filling of the ponds. And they also introduced a system of of land use planning um, controls which prevented uh, the development going ahead. And the only developments that are permitted basically along that area are developments which are specifically related to conservation of wetland. So you can get a little bit of development as long as you preserve a large amount of wetland and you turn it into managed wetland which is conservation purpose rather than commercial fish ponds and it becomes part of that system. It's establishing a bigger system of wetland management outside my po. So can it exist? Yes, it can exist, but we're getting less and less fish ponds, less and less wetland generally. Um, you know, the, the mangroves and everything else are at risk as well outside mm. these areas. So this, the, to me, it, there comes a stage when we should stop reducing the amount of wetland, mm. and, and that's now. It's the, what's okay. happening in, um, it, with the Santin Technopole is, again, a, an unnecessary so, yeah. reduction of what is now very scarce. So that's, that's a historical context for it. Okay, well, let, let's, we can move on to the Santin uh, Technopole in a, a little bit more detail first, but let's, uh, let's um, ask um, Alan uh, Chiradia as well. Um, wh wh what do you think? I mean, how, how difficult is it to strike uh, the right balance in these circumstances? Um, this is a part of the Northern Metropolis uh, mm. development strategy. Uh, as such as well, I mean, we can see a difference between uh, the 2021 uh, document and, uh, and the 2023 document. Uh, if we think about uh, the Northern Metropolis as a, as a larger area, I suppose I mean, there's various area that could be developed if we think about uh, a pro-development uh, view of uh, and agree about kind of developing a northern metropolis and I mean, the counterpart as a, as a harbour metropolis. It's just a matter of how it is done in a way. So that's, that's what um, has been set out, you know. So there's much land in, uh, in, uh, in the northern metropolis. Why there? Why is in, uh, in a way where it is kind of located uh, and taking the, the kind of like... Um, those kind of like very uh, fish pond, that's a bit of a question that uh, is part of a today uh, review in a way. Mm. Right. Um, 
Uh, at the moment, the um, the the metropole, as well as um, you know the different um, circles of development, they they are still, uh, I think, on a drawing board. Could I say that um, it's strategic, it's conceptual? Um, can we develop Sentin Technopole without um, harming or destroying uh, part of the wetlands, or or it can't be done like that? Um, Ian Brownlee, I, I think um, what, what Alan just mentioned is. When the government announced this um, northern metropolis plan, it, it it had an advantage of pulling all of this area right from uh, basically the other side of Yun Long all the way along to the uh, eastern side. It put it in a contextual uh, plan. And the situation is that there are areas suitable for development and there are areas that are very important for conservation. And um, it's how we, we do the mix. And the concept of the, the circles and everything was fine. Um, and when, when the 21 plans came out, they didn't involve any of the wetland that we're talking about in front of Santin villages. The plans were drawn so that they avoided Santin village and they avoided the wetland. And we thought, wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, at least they're giving a priority to, to something which is very scarce. But then we look at the document which has just been released and part of the consultation, and they, they've also put out another um, a, a project outline for the whole area, and, and that's just gone. There's now at least – there's no figures for anything, right? It's a very, very unusual situation where they're asking people to uh, provide comments where they don't even provide the basic information as to what they're doing. So we don't see any discussion, any argument, any justification for um, moving into this wetland area. Mm. So, so can it? Can the Santon, um, the Technopole, whatever that may be, and it's very fluid in the way that it's been conceptualised, could it go somewhere else? And, and one of the suggestions has been that why doesn't it go down into Tolo Harbour at, uh, and as an addition to the um, science park? Um, that's that's already in existence and further developing, and isn't it better to have everything like that located in a, in a situation where they're all together? And at the same time, the the higher priority in terms of the wetland conservation is not affected at all. Mm. So we don't know why it's expanded, and we don't know why it can't go somewhere else. And and that's the fundamental question when you're looking at conservation: is how do you avoid it? How do you avoid compromising something of high ecological value? Mm. Mm. Right, so Santin could be developed, uh, this technopole, uh, without touching the wetlands, just like the 2021 report. The 20, if that was carried forward, it would not touch the wetland. Mm. I remember reading the 2021 report, and it says that you know the, um, the area would be like three times the size of the current uh, HKSTP in Taipo, uh, the science park. And, and now it is like seven times. So is that the key uh, key factor there? I mean, seven times as big as the um, the current science park. Um, yes. yes, Professor. There is yeah. there is concern about size as well and and location. I think as well if we if we think about I mean the, the number of jobs, the, the type of quality that um, uh, those people that want to uh, have uh, kind of uh, knowledge 
economy and uh, way of uh, lifestyle. I guess, I mean, the, that generation of worker one probably uh, a very high quality and kind of uh, uh, related to uh, biodiversity and, and so on. So if you were to ask from that point of view, I guess it would be more for uh, the, the kind of restoration and conservation of uh, those biodiversity uh, area. And uh, if we think about as well a little bit what uh, Shenzhen is doing, uh, Shenzhen has kind of like a food chain, but as well they have a, the northern um, uh, north station, which is a, as well a high-speed uh, rail station. Um, that's, I mean, uh, we have this uh, massive uh, northern metropolis, and it doesn't even have a kind of a north-speed, uh, uh, kind of like a high-speed train station. So could we think about slightly different way Probably. I think, I mean, maybe it's, it's a bit early. Maybe the, those studies are still preliminary. They are still being discussed. And uh, this is part of uh, this uh, conversation. So um, we can be uh, somehow perhaps uh, confident that, that that conversation is taking place now. Mm. So, so the uh, the Suntin Technopole. I mean, it's, it's partly intended to, uh, you know, build up uh, Hong Kong's research and development capabilities. Uh, but also, it'll it will be uh, right next to Shenzhen, which is, uh, as we know, is a big uh, high tech centre now, and it's all part of the plan to uh, to integrate uh, Hong Kong with the Greater Bay Area. Um, uh, I mean, from that point of view, does it make sense to put the uh, to put the facility up by the border? Or, or Ian Brownlee, you were saying you still think it would be better to put it right next to the science park in Tolo Harbour? Well, the, the science park isn't my original suggestion. It's something that other people have brought up, and it mm. seemed quite a reasonable idea. And um, how close do you have to be in, in this age of electronic communication? And it's really only four railway station stops away from from uh, Shenzhen anyway. And we're not saying it, it shouldn't be here because there is already the, uh, the, the loop development in the Lok Ma Chow loop. So there is going to be development there of that nature. And one of the suggestions from one of the um, green groups uh, was that why not put this on the other side of that? Why not move it away from the wetland and put it adjacent to, to the um, development that's already going to go ahead. So, the, and then, you know, there's a lot of questions. And other people said, you know, look at Shenzhen. It's huge. It's absolutely enormous. What are we going to contribute? And what are we going to get out of it from our technopole that's not going to be able to be done elsewhere within Shenzhen? And, and as Alan mentioned, there's development elsewhere in Shenzhen that could accommodate this sort of activity. So, again, it's a matter of integration. Um, how integrated do we have to be, or want to be, and why do we want to establish this relatively small area on, on, on the wetland? Right. Uh, this has been hailed as a twin city concept, you know, Hong Kong, <laughs> Shenzhen, you know, to have closer collaboration, mm. particular mm. in the technology area, um, which. Um, uh, any of you know uh, about uh, the discussions uh, of our Hong Kong SAR government with the Shenzhen government? I'm just wondering whether the Shenzhen government is also pro-conservation a little bit, mm. because as we see, you know, China is quite big on SDG and um, and conservation and um, you know protection of biodiversity. All these are on the national agenda. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, Professor. I think there's, uh, yeah, in, in Shenzhen, there's a big concern about uh, biodiversity uh, and uh, recognition that uh, in Shenzhen has been developing very fast and forgetting a little bit about uh, the conservation and the restoration of, uh, as well, um, park. I mean, there's... Um, in uh, 2021, there were as well uh, the idea of kind of having a continuity between the country park in uh, in Shenzhen and the country park in uh, in Hong Kong, which uh, led to the creation of uh, I think a new country park, which mm. I think is called Robin Hood. Robin's Nest. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And so there is a concern uh, in in China and Shenzhen uh, relative to the conservation of. Uh, about biodiversity and as well implementation of different kind of strategy. So that's what is uh, somehow missing. We have a we have a development strategy in Hong Kong, which I mean has uh, been kind of like put forward. But there is less a kind of like a, a more kind of like um, integrated, I would say, biodiversity strategy between uh, Shenzhen and Hong Kong, and as well for the role of the northern metropolis. So that is a bit lacking, or even, I mean, one could even imagine as kind of like the scale of uh, Hong Kong and Shenzhen as well, and then integrating that as well. So it's not just about integrating development and have a twin city around development, but as well is is about integrating um, the country park chain, it's kind of like a biodiversity, uh, the, the bay, the Tolo Harbour, there's a, there's a big circle with like the Mears Bay as well. So there's... Uh, there's there this intent in a way, but when they, it comes to the detail, some sense uh, usually kind of start kind of sometimes to disappear. Mm-hmm. As was mentioned uh, a little earlier, so the Shenzhen side has de- uh, developed uh, rapidly and fairly comprehensively, right, right up to the uh, to, to the edge of the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, um, uh, it's quite remarkable when you look at it, isn't it? Uh, um, Shenzhen's all built up uh, on the Hong Kong side. There's still a lot of a lot of fish ponds and wetland areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think the fact that uh, um, there's um, uh, uh, very little sort of prospect of conserving anything more on the other side puts more obligation on Hong Kong or should put more obligation on Hong Kong, make it more desirable to, to preserve what still exists on this side? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's definitely true because, um, you know, the birds don't really recognize any boundaries uh, when they're flying <laughs> mm. in, right? They're, they're just looking for the, the right place to stop, to, to, um, to refuel and rest and then move on again. And um, the I think the studies that have been done even back in the, in the 90s um, show that the whole of the wetland uh, in Deep Bay is, is, was really quite closely integrated. And the fact that, um, you know, that Shenzhen has this massive development on the other side has removed a large portion of what was there uh, as a total wetland area. Um, so so that that's an issue. Uh, this is, a, you know, if there's... If we're reducing it by this amount, how effective is, is Hong Kong's wetland going to be as a uh, international um, site for for migratory birds? And that's that's one of the main uh, reasons why we've got the Maipo marshes and the Ramsar site. But but the thing that really came down to um, the question that you just asked is, um, and and again, I'm. I'm it's from talk from people who know much more about it than I do, but there, there's been quite a significant change in the last couple of years in China regarding how they're approaching wetland. And there's much more um, legislation or preventing the, 
general reclamation of wetland and that um, the comment that I had in another discussion earlier this week was that Hong Kong's um, way behind in the the way that it looks after its wetland and the the controls that are in existence and the money that's being spent on on biodiversity and conservation is much greater than, than anything that's ever been done in Hong Kong. So maybe we're falling behind again in that respect too. Well, while they're putting more emphasis, you know, on um, on looking after wetlands, and uh, we have a new plan, you know, this 2023 plan that is trying to eliminate the wetlands, you know, mm. with the Sentin Technopole. Um, I, I wonder whether, you, uh, you know, you, you see, uh, because you, you both of you are very professional and you know a lot of people, you know, could there be um, more discussions between the governments, uh, you know, of Shenzhen and Hong Kong so that there is uh, really a consensus and a political will to conserve wetlands uh, on both sides of the river? Look, I, I, Ada, I don't really know what the discussions are, but there are discussions that take place, and um, but and and I know that there's a, an interaction between the people that are involved in the in the ecology side of things, but I, I don't know what the outcome of that would be. But I think there is a general understanding um, that wetlands do have the significance and. Um, things have changed and they're looking at the way that cities can be done differently um, Mm. to sort of retain more of a a natural um, balance between development and ecology and they they have things such as concept of sponge cities which are now able to absorb water rather than just um, dispatch it off into the the drainage system. So yes, Mm. there's definitely possibilities of doing that and, and, and personally with the greater bay area becoming much more of a context in terms of the way are looking people are looking at it there are obviously other areas around the greater bay area that are would have um, implications and possibilities of, of wetland conservation but i don't know how that's being looked at yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Professor, yeah, would you like to uh, add anything to that, the, the importance of wetlands in terms of uh, flood management and so on? Yes, there is as well uh, the question of uh, sea rising, but as well what happened uh, in case of typhoon and um, when the water kind of like flew from the land and kind of rise from the, from the, from the sea as well. So there is a role for um, a wetland into managing those aspects. I, I guess, I mean, the, the question is like how much as well in China there is uh, the idea of quality development. One can see, for example, the development uh, for uh, the Technopole on the Shenzhen side is much less uh, intense. It's much more kind of like, I would say, low rise, integrated with, uh, I would say, the landscape and so on. Uh, it seems that um, uh, China is kind of undergoing uh, a rethinking of, about the development process to our quality. Uh, are we, are we on, on our side, I mean, in Hong Kong, uh, move toward a, a development of high quality and maybe less dense, less intensive? Uh, I'm not sure of seeing the, the pictures that uh, are proposed. I mean, we see a, a very highly and relatively uh, intensive development. Is it because, I mean, they are linked to our way of doing, uh, I would say, development with um, the MTR, which kind of like demand a certain level of intensity to kind of like be um, uh, visible financially? So that's the question. Uh, the question is like, have we moved toward a quality type of development, a different type of development model, or are we still in a kind of like previous one? Hmm. 
Yeah, and I wonder whether you know that uh, you know a lot of public engagement has been done because if we talk to the users, these IT professionals, surely they would like a lifestyle. Uh, with uh, more cycling and more uh, gardens and with more green, you know, that is already the trend and not 10 years from now. Yes, that's, yes that's, I mean, that's what I've mentioned about the lifestyle. In a way, um, the Northern Metropolis offer the possibility of rethinking the, the lifestyle of those um, economy and knowledge worker. Um, so that's the question is that kind of new lifestyle very taken into account uh, by those development is it's kind of like sort of uncertain it's not just thinking about the development itself but so, so really the northern metropolis kind of like east side and the west side as well of course i mean uh, we are here in the in the middle like uh, a line or with which is a kind of the core of, uh, of uh, administrative and development and office core of um, uh, of Shenzhen, um, does that create pressure? I'm, I'm, it's difficult to know because we have not kind of like uh, um, quite a, a lot of knowledge about the, the interaction between Shenzhen and, and Hong Kong on those discussions. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, stay with us. We're going to take a short break for a new summary and a, and a, a couple of announcements. Uh, we'll be back uh, in about uh, three minutes. Quick look at the weather. Sunny periods today, top temperature of about 22 degrees, moderate east to northeasterly winds. The outlook, mild during the day tomorrow, cool in the morning and dry during the day in the following couple of days. Currently, it's 19 degrees, humidity 77%. And now the news with uh, Sudip Khan. The Housing Authority says it expects to run a deficit of more than a billion dollars in its rental operations for the next fiscal year. But the authority says the shortfall won't put pressure on its overall operations for now. Researchers from the Chinese university say a breakthrough in studies of a rare and incurable motor neuron disease could lead to better treatment. A team from the School of Life Sciences say they gain insights into amyotropic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, affects a person's control over their muscles. One of the all-time greats of the world of football, Franz Beckenbauer of Germany, has died at the age of 78. Tributes have been pouring in. The FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, hailed Beckenbauer as a legend. The defender played for West Germany from 1965 until 1977. I'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. The government requires employers to pay a wage of at least $4,870 a month to foreign domestic helpers for contracts signed on or after September 30th, 2023. An employer should not impose a lower wage or ask a helper to agree to a lower wage. Underpaying a helper is a serious offense. Making false representation on the wages of a helper can lead to prosecution and imprisonment. The Municipal Solid Waste Charging starts on April 1st, 2024. You must use designated bags for waste disposal at waste collection points of buildings or of the Food and Environmental Hygiene Department. Affix designated labels to oversized waste. Designated bags will be sold in nine sizes at 11 cents per liter, while the labels are $11 each. Read the property management notice for any other arrangements. Use designated bags for waste disposal. Do it the right way. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233 and have your say. 
Welcome back to Back Chat with uh, Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. And uh, and we're going to continue our discussion now about uh, development uh, in the Northern New Territories and protection of the SAR's uh, uh, wetlands. Uh, uh, the question being asked, uh, are development and biodiversity um, at odds? Uh, the discussion is, is based on a, a consultation which is uh, going on um, at the moment uh, under uh, uh, government plan to establish a number of new uh, wetland uh, conservation parks in various locations under the uh, Northern Metropolis Development Strategy. We have uh, with us uh, Ian Brownlee, Managing Director of the Town Planning Consultancy uh, Master Plan. Um, also, Alan uh, Chiradia, Associate Professor and Deputy Head of the University of Hong Kong's Department of Urban Planning and Design in the Faculty of Architecture. We're also now joined uh, on the line by uh, Ming Chuan Wu, who's a project manager with the Hong Kong Bird Watching Society. Um, uh, Ms. Wu, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yes, so, good so, so uh, under this plan that we've been talking about, so there will be established, I think, uh, five new uh, wetland conservation parks um, in conjunction, of course, with the uh, existing Maipo Nature Reserve and the and uh, and the wetland park uh, just outside of uh, Tin Choi Wai. Um, what do you think uh, the sort of future looks like in terms of? Um, migrating birds um, using the area and so on. What, what, what are your concerns and what, what are your wishes? So back in 2021, the government announced that they will be resuming a lot of the fish pond and also the uh, wetland areas for um, the five uh, wetland conservation parks. I think this is, which is, which is quite a, a very proactive um, conservation measure that they've proposed and it is a really good thing. But but now, like back uh, just in last year in May, uh, suddenly they came up with this uh, Santin Technopole development, which uh, will, will be filling 90 hectares of fish pond and will be taking away a lot of the wetland conservation area and also the buffer area for development. And putting such a large scale development right next to um, the fish pond area, and we think that this is really alarming and we are very worried about um, if the integrity of the whole deep bay wetland system can be maintained because for the past 30 years, I think the government, the NGOs and also different parties in the, in Hong Kong has been striving very hard to maintain and to conserve the uh, wetland and also the fish pond area in the deep bay area. So there were principles like precautionary approach and also the no net loss in wetland. So we've been protecting these areas for such a long time and it is a really unique wetland in the deep bay area and also in, in the great greater bay area as well and so this is also an important wet, um, wetland and also a site for migratory birds along the uh, east asia australasia flyway as well and so now mm -hmm. we proposing the government is now proposing such a large scale, large scale development right next to or even after um such a sens ecological sensitive area and we are very worried that uh, we don't know. Actually, we really don't know what will happen because there's there's no such scale of development happening in Hong Kong before. Like filling fish ponds of 90 hectares, uh, this is really alarming. I mean, this has not been happened before. So if you are asking what will happen, 
we are really don't know, and we are really worried that this will actually destroy the integrity of the uh, wetland system. And what will it, ha- what what kind of impact it will bring is that um, it, it, some birds may not come back anymore, and we don't know. That's why we have the precautionary approach for for the past decades, and this is not this is not what we're hoping to see, but. Um, yeah, we are very worried about such development. Okay, okay. I, I should say at this stage that we did ask the Development Bureau and the AFCD if they would uh, join the programme, the discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't able to send uh, anybody to uh, today's programme. But, um, but, but let me ask you about, uh, I mean, are there sort of particular bird species that you were worried about? I mean, for instance, uh, you know, we hear a lot about the black-faced spoonbills which mm-hmm. come down uh, every winter from, uh, from, um, um, from Korea. Um, are species like that uh, going to be particularly vulnerable? Um, yes, actually, in uh, last year, in the beginning of last year, I actually saw um, around seventy-eight black-faced spoonbill foraging in the Santian area, and also there's uh, a very rare record of the criti- globally critically endangered bears poacher, which is we haven't seen it for quite a few years already, and it's it's really a rare bird that uses uh, some of the inactive fish ponds uh, in the Santin area and we were really surprised to see that species um, in foraging in that area and it is quite an um, encouraging record for us as well. And actually it's not just the Santin area that is important, it is actually the whole system, it is within the whole Deep Bay area system and Santin is actually located right next to the Ramsar site, which is an um, internationally recognized uh, wetland. And so it has a really strong connection with, with the Ramsar site. And it is also within the important bird and biodiversity area recognized by the BirdLife International. So itself, it is a well-recognized um, um, wetland and also important for migratory birds and water birds as well. And so within the Santin area, we do have... Uh, records of over 200 bird records and within these 200 um, bird records around 100 and 170 species are of conservation concern and there are also 19 of them are actually globally threatened or near threatened species and 33 of these species uh, of the species are also the china protected wild animals so there's not they're, they're not just really common species there are quite a lot of um, species, bird species that are of conservation concern. And that's why Santin itself, it is important. And also the system that it is within, uh, it's the, the, the ecological system that is connected um, to this area is also very important. It's, that's why it, it can support such a, a high bird diversity and also why it is very important for migratory birds as well. Right. Um, uh, Ms. Wu, uh, uh, did the government uh, consult or do any public engagement exercises prior to announcing their report uh, in May last year? Did the green um, groups uh, know anything about that? No, we, we were really surprised because what we've been knowing is that there will be the Sunshine Lock, uh, Lock Marchal, um New, new development north, which is all the developments are basically just right to the south of the highway. So they won't be touching any of the fish ponds and any of the wetlands. Uh, we know that it would touch uh, partly in the uh, wetland buffer area, but there's no like large scale um, pond filling or wetland filling. And so that we've been, we've been um, providing our comments on that development for quite a few years already. And just all of a sudden, 
in May um, 2023, they suddenly just pop up this Santin Technopole development, which will be filling of 90 hectares of fish pond. This is really surprising for us, and we haven't heard anything like this before. And even the scale is like we haven't seen such a scale of development, which requires such extensive pond filling before. And so this is really, really surprising. And um, they, they've consulted us on, on the Sun Team Technical after they announced it, like after, uh, like I think it, I remember we, they consulted the green groups at the very last day of the consultation and we were, we were the, like the last one to be consulted and they had consulted other professional bodies before that. And so now um, they've, now the AFCD um, is now doing the consultation for the wetland conservation parks. And um, we've uh, we've noticed that the, actually the wetland conservation park is already reduced in size because of the Suntin Technopole development. And so uh, we are hoping that um, the government can uh, actually reduce the amount of uh, fish pond that will be filled and increase the area of the uh, wetland conservation park area because um, area is actually important, not just the function. I think we've been talking about this to the government and um, even in China, they have the new policy or they have a trend of doing more conservation or even wetland conservation. They, they do say that the government, I mean, the, our, our country, uh, China, is also mentioning that actually preserving and conserving the area in terms of area is also important. And, and actually, it's also in the global trend under the coming um, biodiversity global framework. Um, actually um, protecting the number of uh, area of marine or coastal areas or terrestrial areas, using the number of um, protected areas uh, is also a very important indicator of how well the country is doing in nature conservation. And so um, I think both area and function needs to be considered um, in, in the debate uh, wetland conservation and especially in the Suntin area as well. Okay, well let's uh, let's ask our other two guests who are still with us before we yeah. uh, wind up uh, uh, this part of the programme. So in terms of this uh, specific proposal for establishing five new wetland conservation parks uh, um, in addition obviously to the existing Maipo Nature Reserve and the wetland park at uh, Tinshoi Wai, um, what, what, what do you think about that uh, Ian Brownlee? Is it, is it well, enough? I, I, I think the whole system that they're proposing is going to fail because it's assuming that government will spend money to resume the land from everyone who owns it in that area and then they'll put conservation in, in place. Now, if we look at the situation now, financially, Hong Kong doesn't have that again to be able to do it. And this is why they came up with the previous systems. And, and Ms. Wu mentioned that you know, no net loss of wetland. And there's a whole... Uh, system for controlling the amount of development, where it goes and what the impact is. And all of that's based on the developer being able to get some development to be able to carry out the conservation. And that is only in place because government didn't have any money or any priority on wetland conservation. And I just, when I look at what they're doing here, it's just... They, they, they're not going to give that priority in terms of funding, especially when money's not readily available. And, mm. and the, the whole of the, you know, the, this new drawing that they've come out with doesn't reflect anything of the ecological process that we have to go through to get development. And, and the way that they've drawn the lines on the plan doesn't reflect anything. 
So in terms of all of the processes that we have very strictly in place, this is contrary to everything. And as Ms. Wu said, everyone is surprised at what they've come out with because it doesn't fit in with any of the requirements that exist regarding conservation and development along this area. So I, I, I personally, I'm, I'm really disappointed. I thought there was a prospect, and as she mentioned, um, it was all on the other side of the road, and we thought, oh, great, they've got the idea. And now, as far as all of the strip and all their proposals, they, they've just lost their integrity. This is not going to happen. They've, the first opportunity of putting something in place, they completely change it, and we have this incredible amount of wetland going. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, professor? Yeah, it's kind of difficult to be uh, not surprised by the by the new proposal. Uh, even if we, if we take, for example, the, in 2005, they have a, the government commission uh, landscape value map, and then if you look at that value map, in fact, that area have a high value uh, kind of uh, a landscape, high value, and so on. So, even if we want kind of like to follow the government kind of own uh, assessment, is is a little bit kind of like. Um, I would say contradictory and paradoxical in a way. So one one wonder if this is a recommended outline development plan, what were the other alternative in a way? So one is uh, a little bit um, uh, left uh, despondent about uh, this proposal. Mm. Okay, well, we'll obviously uh, we'll follow developments and, and see what happens, but uh, uh, thank you all very much for joining uh, this morning's programme. That was um, Alan uh, Chiradia, Associate Professor and Deputy Head at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Urban Planning and Design. Thanks very much to Ian Brownlee, Managing Director of the Town Planning Consultancy at Master Plan, and to Ming Chan Wu, Project Manager at uh, Hong Kong Bird watching society the rthk english news service brings you the latest news throughout the day right here on your radio our homepage, facebook and the rthk news app and now we're on instagram up-to-date news videos feature stories and podcasts all at your fingertips search rthk english news and follow us right now catching up with the very latest local and international news just got even easier on your radio our homepage, facebook the app and now instagram rthk english news and for the last part uh, of this morning's programme, we're going to be talking about uh, suggestions uh, of a review of Hong Kong's approach to tackling uh, African swine fever and uh, other uh, biological uh, issues, because we're joined uh, now in the studio by uh, Dirk Pfeiffer, Chair Professor at City University's College of Veterinary, Veterinary Medicine and Life Sciences. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much to join for joining us. Uh, uh, so... Um, as we know, uh, we have a, a program with a, a problem with African swine fever at the moment. Um, we get these uh, outbreaks uh, from time to time. Um, you're uh, suggesting that uh, we do look at biosecurity measures and, and make improvements. Would you like to elaborate? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess this has been something I think we've been, we've, we've been pushing for a long time. It's not just for that virus, it's for any infectious disease. And I have to say, whether that's chickens or that's pigs, it really doesn't make a difference. And, and I often kind of sort of say, think about us while we handled uh, SARS coronavirus. We enhanced our bio, personal biosecurity in order to keep those infections away from us. So we have to do the same also with the pig farms and actually substantially improve the biosecurity. Um, because the reality is the virus is in the region. 
Okay, and that is uh, mainland China, that is the Philippines, that's Thailand, that's Vietnam, etc. Which means there will be many ways of how the virus can come back um, to Hong Kong and therefore also um, to Hong Kong pig farms. And the only way to deal with that is really to enhance biosecurity, to keep the virus out of the farms, but also to minimize the opportunity for spread within the farm once it has been introduced. And that latter part may be the more difficult bit, actually. Mm. Right. How serious is uh, swine fever? Is it really much more serious than the ordinary one? I mean, good point. I mean, it's, I mean, put it this way. Serious in the sense it's not a zoonosis, okay? So it doesn't affect humans. And I think that's, that's a huge benefit, one has to say. The seriousness is, uh, and it's diff, diff, classical, there's classical swine fever also, which is what I'm not talking about, talking about African swine fever. But that's a very tough virus, okay? I mean, and you can see it when you look around the world how it's been slowly moving. It's a slow virus, but it does move. And once you've got it, very difficult to get rid of. And one of the reasons is it's compared with the other, say, flu viruses that we know, it's a very strong virus, okay? It's a DNA virus, which is big and can survive in the environment and also in products, you know, in sausages, etc. So there's so many ways how it's being moved around, and therefore it's very difficult for any country to escape the introduction of the virus. The only way to then deal with it is to improve the hygiene measures um, to protect the farms, the pig farms, and also, like I said, to actually try to prevent the spread within once it has been introduced. It, it is very contagious, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting virus. It's not like a, a, an influenza virus, avian influenza virus, which actually uh, spreads very quickly because it also spreads through the air, you know? This one doesn't spread through the air. It's in the environment, direct contact, and it takes a few days until you actually see anything, mm. you see? And that's part of the problem. The farmer won't see sick pigs for a week or even longer. And, and then they may confuse it early on with other diseases. So you may be two weeks late by the time you actually pick it up. Um, mm. And that makes it very hard mm. to actually control it. Mm. Right. And, and there will be lots of death on yeah, death and of it, the pigs. Yeah, and, it's, and, and this is sort of kind of interesting. I mean, you, and this is, I mean there's so, I mean, so many places and farms around the world that have had, that have had it now, and particularly also in mainland and in, 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 in Vietnam, and sm big farms, small farms. It all depends on what type of farm it is, you know. If you've got a small-scale farm where they don't have a lot of money to spend on biosecurity, it will spread very rapidly, and then you've got lots of dead pigs. And there are other situations, we've seen that in Hong Kong on some farms where you had lots of pigs, um, and probably because it was detected too late, and on others it, it seemed to move much more slowly where we were trying to prevent culling all the pigs. Because we don't want to cull all the pigs, you see? Because it's, like I said, it's not a zoonosis, and if a pig actually isn't sick, why would you want to cull it? Um, but the moment we haven't, that's the only thing we, 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 we can do in these farms that haven't got adequate biosecurity. So, so the situation now then, if, if, there, is, uh, if there are cases of uh, African swine fever on a farm, then all the pigs are cold, right? Yeah, and I mean, like I said, and that's why I keep, keep sort of emphasizing, and this is where I probably have been slightly misquoted with living with the virus. The living with means actually the virus is in the region, i.e. So we can't actually build Fortress Singapore against the virus, or, not, or used to say that about Singapore, or Hong Kong 
around for against the virus. We can't because it'll keep coming across the border. So it's 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 will 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 be with it. It'll be there. It'll continue to be there um, because it can't be eliminated from the neighboring countries. Now the other thing is also it can get into wild boar and it has been in wild boar. Okay, we've had it in wild boar in in Hong Kong. We we, we do think that that's not the cause of the introduction to the farms. I mean, the introduction of farms could have been via the maybe pigs, live pigs that came into the central slaughterhouse and trucks getting contaminated or people having visited mainland, etc. It's quite difficult to trace, you see. Yeah, I meant to ask you about that because, uh, uh, yeah, as we know, the wild boar population has been uh, expanding yeah. somewhat. I mean, you know, you go out in on Hong Kong Island or out in the sort of Kowloon Hills or something, the chances are you're going to see them these days. Yeah. Uh, um, so, um, but, but, you, but you're saying that's not, you don't think that's a factor in... Uh, not, not, in not, the, not yet, not yet, you know, not yet. I mean, it's been, in, in Europe, it's the main factor, but that's also because biosecurity on the farms is so much better, okay? Right. So it's, right. uh, so here we, we, we've, and, and never say never, okay? Um, uh, I, uh, we, we, because, and it's all by, num by numbers. Infectious diseases about, are about density of uh, susceptible individuals, whether that's humans with human diseases or, in this case, pigs. If you've got lots of pigs, if you've got lots of wild boar, there's more opportunity for spread of infection. Um, and that's just a, a, a biological fact. Um, and that we need to be aware of and we need to keep monitoring. Mm. Right. But at this stage, when we look at the farms where the operators have gone, it's not that, that it's believed that that hasn't been the source. Right. So, um, you know, whether it's mainland China or in Hong Kong, uh, are people, are the farmers aware uh, that they have to enhance the biosecurity? <laughs> and is it expensive to do? It is. It is. And I mean, this is for me, it's so easy. I'm an academic. I sit in my office I go, <laughs> and I can say these things. You see, it's, it's not, it's, it's, and it's, study, it's the same whether I, I am from Germany. It's the same in Germany with farmers. They have their way of running the farm and they're making a living. And um, I, know, I mean, some of them are better off and others are not. And, but to actually improve the facilities, and particularly this is about buildings, you know, having, and in Hong Kong that's very difficult, you know, you need more space. You need to have separate buildings. You need to have, in theory, shower in and shower out facilities. That's unrealistic on, on most of those local farms. Mm. Where AFCD is proposing some approaches of compromise approaches, okay, where people at least change their clothing, okay, disinfect their hands, change the footwear when they go onto the farm. Um, and it's these kinds of small steps that we need to try. And then hopefully we can come up with something where we don't kill or have to cull all the pigs once the disease has been introduced and hopefully also protect as many farms as possible from any introduction. Mm -hmm. But it's also, farmers also have to take a responsibility. Right. And be so much there are at the moment no compulsory measures. They're just guidelines and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and encouraged uh, practices. Yeah, 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 because it also, you know, it's like with most things. I mean, think of us with COVID. We need to change our behaviours. Humans are, are reluctant. They have their way of doing it, running their show, uh, running the business and running the farm, the feeding and uh, how they handle the pigs and so on, and whether they have walls between the different sections or not. And these things need to be introduced. Mm. Um, but if we haven't got that, the moment you introduce the virus to the farm, it will just spread everywhere, and then all the pigs have to be eventually be culled. A uh, message here from uh, listener Mike, which is kind of a, a question and a comment, I guess, is uh, uh, where are the large pig farms? Uh, Lao Fa Shan, Tin Choi Wai area. 
when concentrations are greater, sickness is greater. Is that, uh, that, 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 that yeah. that's that's true? That's that's true. But I, I wouldn't put it this way. <laughs> These are still small farms compared with what we've got across the border in mainland. Okay, they were talking about. I've been. I was on the largest pig farm in the world in 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 central China. I've never seen anything like it. It's like a f- factory. In but I have to say, very good biosecurity. But the point is right now. Farmers may be inclined to have, they have a fairly limited space, and then they try to uh, increase the number of pigs as much as they can. There's a license. Um, government gives them the license for a certain number of pigs, um, and hopefully they stay within that. And that, and that will actually provide opportunities for transmission. So, so f- fair point. Um, we may need to scale back there. I mean, that may be one way of, of dealing with it also. But then consumer pays the price, you see, because that has implications of local pork supply, um, and that has implications on the, on the price of the pork. Um, and that needs to be also uh, considered. So also if farmers start to invest, that means that we need to charge more for the pork. Um, and will consumers be happy with that? Yeah, you, you did mention uh, that um, you know the virus will stay even with the processed uh, products. With the processed yeah, yeah, pork. yeah. It's, it's like I mean sausages and so on. It's quite it's quite extraordinary, really. I mean this, this has been, and, and people. This is not malicious intent. Then you see, people may take food products from their region to when they visit family somewhere else, and that is a way of moving the virus around. Um, right, and it is not prohibited to sell these it, products. It, 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 I mean, obviously, regulations in most countries are nowadays that you shouldn't do that. But then that's not necessarily. And actually, I say Australia often picks these up, and they have statistics about that, and they have numbers in terms of what percentage of those uh, meat products actually were necessarily not necessarily with wild uh, live virus, but, but they were good detect virus in them. So it's, it's happening everywhere. Um, and people think they can actually manage the risks themselves mm. because they want to do something good for, for their relatives. But it doesn't affect human... No, 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 no. That's absolutely... No. It's just, you just want to make sure that it doesn't get onto a pig farm. And I would argue that virus is moving around the world, but in most, luckily, um, including the US and elsewhere, it doesn't end up on a pig farm. You know, because people people will consume the products, and then that's the end of it, really. Um, but occasionally it happens. Mm. Uh, and just uh, briefly, just going back to the wild boars again, because they are part of a, a yeah. sort of natural uh, scene now. Um, um, how much of a threat is uh, African swine flu to the wild pig population? Swine fever. Okay. Swine f- uh, sorry, I said, <laughs> that's another I'm one. Sorry. Swine, sw- swine fever. Sorry. Uh, right. um, uh, I mean, it, it actually, it's, it's the same as with the with the uh, domestic pigs. I mean, mm. they will actually die. So that so that's another uh, thing. Actually, if you have if you don't see lots of dead pigs, it's probably unlikely that there's a lot of virus around amongst those pigs. We've had these because people will find them, you know, in the report. I mean, that's how it was detected. Right. Um, Okay. okay. All right. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming into the studio. It's a, a very interesting uh, conversation. Thank you. Yes, yes. Thanks very much. That was uh, uh, Dirk Pfeiffer, Chair Professor at City University's College of Veterinary Medicine and Life Sciences. Um, uh, thanks to our listeners. Thanks very much to you, Ada. Thank you, Jim. And uh, stay with us because we have a news summary coming up, followed by Breakfast with Noreen.